0: No more defenses. Our army is wiped out. Artillery, air force,
1: everything wiped out. This may be the last broadcast. We'll stay here to the end. Okay, so here we go. The end of media. We're starting it now. This is where the end begins.
0: That's, a, that's an awesome undertaking, but I like the idea that, that we can focus on the idea that, because um, it's the double entendre of the idea that it's media coming to an end in the way we used to think about it, but then the end of media, the thing that it's trying to accomplish. What's it doing to us? How's it messing with our wetware and everything? So I think that, that fits,
1: and, and I think. What a better way to start than talking about the First Amendment. I think that's a great idea. <laughs> so I, I I wanted to start by discussing this article that was in, it was an op-ed in the New York Times by Tim Wu, who Tim Wu is one of my favorite authors. He's a Columbia Law School professor. He's written a book called The Master Switch. Uh, about the rise and the fall of information empires. He's got uh, a new book that's called *The Attention Economy*, which is sort of the the history of advertising. Uh, and that's what I like a lot about his writing. So he uh, is a is a lawyer by trade um, or by study, but he writes a lot like a historian. He coined the term net neutrality. Um, McGill University, Harvard Law grad. Uh, really interesting. Guy and he he actually had originally written this article for the Knight First Amendment Institute and it was originally called Is the First Amendment Obsolete, um, but then of course New York Times comes up with this you know more saucy title How Twitter Killed the First Amendment um, and there's some interesting points he makes. Uh, talking about how he feels that we're not doing enough to protect journalists and others from public harassment, um, that social media companies should not be accepting, you know, at at a minimum, should not be accepting money for political advertising from uh, foreign governments. And uh, I think probably the the third point that he makes is that the White House needs to be held more accountable uh, when they, you know, they try to use private parties, as he says, private parties to circumvent First Amendment protections. And he specifically cites, you know, here's, here's the White House trying to demand uh, NFL uh, team owners, you know, to censor their own players themselves. They're, you know, essentially wielding state power uh, to, to, to punish those. Um, so interesting, interesting article. I love the title of it. I love... Um, um, just the idea of having this specific conversation about wh- wh- where is the First Amendment right now, um, and I'd be curious to hear. You know, how how have you seen this conversation uh, shift over time? There's,
0: well, there's a there's a funny misalignment in a way that we have in our culture when we think about the First Amendment and who it actually applies to, because you've got this interesting overlap between uh, governmental entities and uh, legislation, the Justice Department, things like that, and then these private companies. And the private companies are enjoying this kind of uh, protection that is extremely unique and I think for its history not terribly well understood. Um, so, uh, you know, that we don't have a sort of a public media component of it in the same way is I think one interesting thing that makes it different from other parts of the world. Um, that they are that they are private entities that are in some cases, as we'll talk about later, going into battle with other private entities. I think is really interesting. But this is all, even happening with how some of these institutions are defining themselves. So it gets back to that. Like if you ask somebody where you get your news from, and they say Facebook, and you go, "Ha ha, no." Um, what about the what about the organizations that are really generating the content, and what kind of pressures they're under now in this environment where uh, Facebook is a player, Google is a player, all of these other things are are making it more complicated for them to do what they do.
1: I'd be curious to hear how do uh, of those three points that that Tim Wu is making, um you know how how do you prioritize what are what are the big issues that we're seeing? So we've got um, protect, uh, protecting the people from harassment from the trolls that exist. Uh, we also got the issue with um, you know the foreign governments using it, exploiting the advertising systems of Facebook and Google and Twitter, um, you know, to uh, to affect. Um, you know essentially our entire democracy and then you also got the White House weaponizing tools like Twitter for their for the you know for for their own uh, ideas as well you know like like those seem like such three um, uh, isolated but such hot you know pertinent um, issues that we're facing what do you think
0: the well the the I I think some of the discussion that he does inside of it about uh, what the nature of speech is, and particularly speech at the fringes of where it really is, there's precedent for it in the past, having been, you know, restricted. So hate speech, aggressive speech, threatening right. speech, things like that, which are, you know, have, have a historical legacy of being uh, things that we really do want to regulate pretty heavily, um, as opposed to just sort of like speech in general, and even speech we disagree with, which I think is very important. Um, but he does at one point I think it's hilarious he says some might argue this is what uh, a quote from him some might argue based on the sophomoric premise that more speech is always better that the current state of chaos is what the First Amendment intended but no defensible free speech tradition accepts harassment and threats as speech treats foreign propaganda campaigns as legitimate debate or thinks that social media bots ought to enjoy constitutional protection buried inside of there's lots of interesting things I think about what we think speech actually is, where we where we make assumptions about how it works, how we think about the relationship between thought and speech, um, between thought and performance, I think is another way to think about it, sort of thinking about the rhetorical side of how these things work. Um, and, you know, what's going to happen with uh, a Justice Department that seems to have already positioned itself in relationship to some of these issues and I, I think are making it much more complicated to figure out how, as a uh, as a public, we can make sure that the free speech rights that exist are serving us well, particularly through media that's under fire so much.
1: I'd be curious to hear, so I have to out one thing, which is, our relate our long term relationship, how we originally got introduced was you actually taught the very first course that I took within the College of journalism uh, intro to to mass communications and one of the assignments that you had us do was memorize um, and then recite the first amendment uh, as i can't remember what it was a, a test or you know one of our one, one of the various assignments that we did with throughout the class um, how do you approach the First Amendment as a classroom topic—it's there.
0: There are so many dimensions to it. I think it's an interesting thing because the the language of it is fixed, um, but it raises this really interesting, very important constitutional question and you know, if I'm using it in the classroom, part of the idea is to hopefully get people to think about that. And it's, you know, sort of like the real simple common way people think about it is constitution as original intent versus constitution as living document, right? The idea that uh, whatever was in the minds of the writers of the constitution at the beginning is what you're going after versus the belief that what was written in the constitution should really adapt two things that have changed really radically since that time? And what are the consequences of those? And I don't usually, um, I mean, I think, of course, I do fail often to stay away from staying where I fall on that but I think thinking about those sort of suspending judgment and thinking about so what are the advantages of original intent what are the disadvantages what are the advantages of living document what are the disadvantages and then how does that apply given the incredibly radical difference in our current communication environment to theirs I mean can you imagine going back to the late 18th century and explaining to some wealthy landowner what a bot is right and to what extent or, you know, even if you wanted to say something like, uh, you know, the the old corporations are people things, right? Things that would be very foreign, I think, to the way that uh, they, they were trying to think about communication at the time. Um, so but but I think it's a puzzle that we need to keep after. I, I for the most part, I don't think it's going to be easily settled.
1: Yeah. And one of the things that Tim Wu talks about and something I, had, I hadn't really ever thought about was how this is playing out in China and Russia as well. Um, you know, we talk a lot about like, how do we eliminate hate speech? How do we eliminate bots? And one of the things that he's ta- he talks about is how, um, you know, w- when there is uh, dissension towards politics within social media, what China does is like floods, you know, the timelines with all of this pro-government rhetoric as well and it's almost like this I think what he he calls it like a reverse censorship really interesting concept something I had never thought about before Um, was that a new concept to you as well I yeah I think
0: so the the just because like the the terms of it on an international scale have changed so much Uh, and so even thinking about uh, how you know, the, the term soft power, the idea that you're trying to communicate a particular relationship between, um, you know, the sort of corporate sector, the way we think about it in the US, and then that kind of fusion between the corporate sector and the government in a Chinese context. There was a story uh, on National Public Radio fairly recently about uh, Chinese acquisition of, of, lots of different kinds of properties in the U S and eventually it's going to raise an interesting issue about how we think about media ownership and relationship to the free market in relationship to uh, what we think is like a socially appropriate way to have our, journalism covered, how uh, films get made, who owns what, which I think is going to end up being a critical issue. Uh, One of the things he says in here, again, which I thought really struck me, was our distressing state of public discourse stems from the widespread use of these new tools of censorship and speech control, including by the White House. The administration habitually crosses the line between fact and propaganda. I think that's a really interesting um, idea that, that requires a great deal of thought uh, because, of course, if, the, if and when the media does that, uh, it becomes either the confirmation bias of the kind of mix between censorship and propaganda that you like because it agrees with you uh, or it becomes the stuff you despise because it's completely destroyed uh, any kind of boundary between the two, like trying to sort out whatever media you're consuming between the news and the editorial side. Um, which, which is always kind of a, uh, it's always kind of a challenge, uh, to keep up with. Um, but you know, the fact that the technologies that were, that, that the communities are being exposed to right now are reacting so quickly and providing such uh, a plethora of choices of things you can find yourself agreeing with, even though they're, you know, insane (laughs) in some cases, um, and it's almost like throwing everything that you can possibly throw at a population and then seeing which ideas stick. And then the question becomes, what do we do about that? What's our, what's our way of, of responding to that? Um, and it, so I'm, I'm kind of curious what you think about whether this really is presenting a problem that's going to fundamentally change how we think about the First Amendment.
1: That's a good question. Um, The thing that you that you rose about uh, rose um, about the idea of does a bot is is a bot essentially protected by the First Amendment. And I think that's a a complex issue in which we're going to try to understand as technology develops um, is is artificial intelligence protected. Um, Are these seemingly non human entities also protected. Um, are human-created, automated tools protected as well? And um, I think that's where we get the complexity of how to interpret the First Amendment. Is just who 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 gets to um, have the uh, you know the who who gets to ha- to have the First Amendment as something that protects them?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and in the, a the time also when. You know, there's sort of an, an implicit relationship between money and speech and access um, that that make that all more complicated. And some of the regulation that people are beginning to discuss is whether there should be more transparency in terms of the political advertising that's being purchased on some of these online sites. Um, And it's just interesting how that is completely pulling the other direction from um, the, the sort of more secretive direction that a lot of campaign financing has gone in the recent past Uh, After it was decided that there really didn't need to be any transparency in terms of funding political advertising, that you could hide an awful lot of manipulative political advertising uh, without identifying, you know, who on whose behalf it's, it's happening. So,
1: yeah. And I and I found myself going back and forth. I mean, there have been times where I've said that. You know, I, I, I don't necessarily agree with technologies regulating what you can and can't say because of the First Amendment. But over time, I think my opinion has drastically shifted on that we have to have some type of um, of line in which we draw. In which we say you know we we, we, you know this type of harassment is just point blank unacceptable you know on on this specific channel itself um i want to i want to transition though you know we're talking about sort of the relationship maybe between uh the you know the state and the public or the state really in in media and transition to talking about uh the media and private companies as well there's an interesting story that's been brewing um uh, about uh, of a of between the la times and disney so uh, daniel miller a reporter for the la times wrote a couple pieces that came out recently on the relationship between disney and anaheim here uh, the first one's called is disney paying its share to anaheim um it's about a 4 forty uh, uh, four hundred word piece then he wrote a follow-up of how one election changed disneyland's relationship with its hometown it's another. 4000 plus word piece so there's there's a lot of dense material itself um and unsurprisingly disney was really mad about these pieces um basically the at, at the heart of this story is is that disneyland has benefited um, for a a couple of decades uh, since the early 90s from um, different uh, agreements in which they've had with the city of Anaheim. Anaheim financed an entire uh, parking garage for them in which Disney paid nothing for but reaps all of the The profits from itself, um, you know, they have uh, excluded them from specific taxes. Um, Let me see if I can find my note for that. Uh, A forty-five year, um, uh, forty-five years in which they don't have to pay any potential entertainment tax as well. Uh, In exchange for that, Disney is going to build, you know, their Star Wars theme area, Um, and they've also got like the largest tax rebate for a luxury hotel and what's happened is there's now sort of this new 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 team in town at at at, at city hall including the mayor who i wouldn't say is necessarily anti disney but isn't really going to uh, to to really play with disney how they've been playing they've been they've been financing uh, disney's put like uh, over uh, a, a million dollars into 10 different packs uh, trying to defeat these people. Uh, they're trying to really sort of uh, clamp down on these people that are They're that basically saying like, hey, like, okay, we, we've, we've helped you Disneyland build whatever you want. We've given you all the exemptions, um, but we want to see that money drop back into the city of Anaheim. And if you've, you know, you've been to Anaheim, you know, it's very clean. It's very pretty around Disneyland. And if you get 5 miles away from it, you know, it's a very different looking city. And um basically that that's that that's 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 the story in itself and it goes into the complexities of where all this originated from, uh what the new mayor's sort of trying to do. The 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 story then evolves as this happens in real time, where Disney ends up blocking the LA Times, uh, blocking them in multiple ways. They're not giving them advances of movies for them to be able to do reviews. They're blocking them from specific press websites basically blacklisting all of LA Times uh, and coming out with some, you know, some pretty vitriolic responses, you know, and they're quote saying like, this is, you know, absolutely fabricated. Um, yet they, ha- they didn't ask the LA Times to, 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 um, you know, to, 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 to reword anything or put out any uh, updates to their stories as well. They're just, they just basically, um, you know, called it off. And that's led to, other media entities then coming in saying, hey, not cool, Disney. Not cool for you to be t- treating uh, a, a media company like this um, for simply writing about the complexities between a private company and a city. And so they have started saying, well, you know, we're going to you know, we're going to stand beside L.A. Times. A.V. Club said this. Um, some others have said this as well. Basically, Actually, the,
0: I just saw that the uh, U.K. Film Critics Circle is also supporting. Yeah. It, yeah. yeah.
1: It's, a, it's, so and, it's
0: an international and, thing as well.
1: Right. And, and eventually Disney's backed down. But I and I don't know exactly what's caused it. You know, they said, okay, well, we've met with leadership in the LA, LA Times, and we're now comfortable with allowing them to, you know, be have, have, you know pre-screen movies now or whatever. Um, but a really interesting story to see this sort of play out, particularly in public, as much as it was, because LA Times was very up, f- up front of, you know, hey, we don't have the review of Thor, and it's because Disney won't let us look at it, and we'll do a review once it's out in public. But uh, this would normally be here, but we. Re- Feel like it, and they, you know, basically called them on the floor and said, "Hey, you have blacklisted us because of a story we did, uh, and that's not right." Well, here's
0: the just just because I think it's like ironic and funny, uh, I just looked up the Wikipedia definition for Ragnarok, which is the the Thor film at the center, which by the way was uh, uh, lo- looks hilarious. I mean, it looks like it's going to be sort of more on the comic side. And that so this being the film that they decided anyway. So Ragnarok, <laughs> Ragnarok is a series of future events, including a great battle, foretold to ultimately result in the death of a number of major figures, the occurrence of various natural disasters, and the subsequent submersion of the world in water. So you know you can you can almost in a, in a way think of Disney and the L.A. Times because they're you know I mean they're both private uh, they're, well they're both corporate entities uh, kind of going at it, um, and I'm thinking more Pacific rim maybe than Ragnarok, but just this idea that they're uh, trying to battle it out for uh, trying to define what's acceptable in terms of one corporate entity talking about another, right? Um, Disney address This is a, from the story. Disney addressed its feud with the Times last week in a statement complaining of bias and inaccurate coverage that showed a quote complete disregard for basic journalistic standards. Never heard that before, huh? <laughs> uh, Times reporter Dan Miller, who wrote the Disneyland stories, fired back, tweeting that Disney never asked for a correction. Right. So it's 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 like almost like trying to understand lawyer speak when you're looking at the way that the the corporations talk to each other about what counts. Is bias, what counts is, and they always drag out the term balance. You're not being balanced about it, um, and these become, I think, things that for an audience are, yeah, well, you know, that's that's typical media behavior. And there's nothing more hilarious than trying to talk to people who've been raised on the Disney buffet about the fact that Disney is a corporation and can therefore do some things as a corporation that are, yeah, maybe not so sweet and innocent. And people get, there's lots of people who get very, very defensive, like, oh, no, they formed my whole, my whole value system is grounded in Disney films. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, well, you read about this, you know, then you kind of see where their value system really lies, um, uh, you know, in this, in this kind of weird relationship with film critics. Right. You know, which they're kind of dependent on to some extent, too, for, you know, for being able to have a commercial future for their work.
1: Yeah, and I I'm curious of like who I mean ultimately I feel like this is a win for the LA Times. Um but who really wins in you know and 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 having these 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 public arguments. Um you know to to what degree is LA Times sort of owed I mean it's it's one thing you know it's one thing to not like give give them access to thor early it's another to like completely blacklist them from like accessing any type of press materials right mm-hmm. and like w- i am i'm curious as to, like what was w- was disney looking to make a public statement was this something that they were hoping to sort of got you know um you know uh, brushed under the rug that no one's going to notice that we've basically told uh what are the largest uh media organizations in the, in the United States, um, the one that happens to be directly within, you know, in, in, in Hollywood, in our backyard, uh, that they, they're no longer going to, to be able to access our entertainment.
0: Yeah. It's, it's, it's a strange kind of conflict because it, I think it might be more, um, uh, think of it more as battle rather than war. And if, if, as it seems to have turned out that Disney's backed down, then, uh, but they've, I mean, it's sort of softened the ground for going back to this if there's anything critical presented about them. Uh, Disney as a corporation has always been very sensitive to criticism of their, you know, their brand uh, and their, you know, they cultivate it so carefully. Uh, It's interesting to watch they respond to technological change and to, you know, think back to the days when they would say that something was available for a limited time. And so then, you know, your your, your kids would be terrified that they would never going to see Pinocchio. Uh, Or, you know, in my case, I I do have to, you know, one little bit of Disney history that I think is really fascinating is when I, and and this is an admission, my, my dearly departed father decided when I was a small child that it would be a good idea for us as a family to go see Song of the South. And I don't know if you've ever seen Song mm-hmm. of the South. It's it's one of that. And some of the more racist cartoons are things that are pretty they're available, but they're kind of they're usually in the packaging that looks like something that's really more for like a film uh, archivist than uh, a kid. Um, but it's, you know, telling the Bear rabbit stories and it constructs that kind of happy old Dixie. That, you know, this this kind of like uh, Civil War era, Jim Crow era idea of what was going on in the American South. Um, and, you know, with the mixture of uh, old African-American storytellers and animated characters and wasn't everything nice and zippity-doo-dah, which is the thing that people know and probably don't know that that's from this um, film that's really arguably quite racist. Um and so therefore not, not part of the apparatus. But again, that's not the sort of thing that, that Disney is interested in now. And here, you know, part of it is these corporate relationships with with entities uh, like Anaheim and the LA Times that, that are all uh, things that, again, I, I'm going to be predictable and boring to say that. Ultimately, it comes down to people being able to pay careful attention to how these moves happen. What is Disney doing? What is the L.A. Times doing? L.A. Times makes mistakes. Media organizations make mistakes all the time. Disney makes mistakes. Um, how, how are they interacting in a way that for somebody in the general public, they can understand what's the relationship between these as media corporations and what does it mean for them kind of in the long run? Uh, When they're raising their kids and exposing their kids to the idea of what the Disney Corporation is. Or, you know, when you're reading the L.A. Times and trying to make sense out of what their position is in relationship to the corporation.
1: Yeah, so I think a a headline that was missed was L.A. Times put back in the vault. (laughs) <laughs> I think we could have ran into that. That would have, yeah that, <laughs> that 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 would have been, yeah. It's
0: yeah. It's it's it, and it's it's going to be an ongoing thing. I think, uh, you know, particularly if what the L. A. Times was going to do was savage. Thor, Ragnarok. I'm I'm guessing that if they were going to savage it, they probably would have let the review run early (laughs) and that they put it off because, you know, we're not going to pat you on the back if you're going to close us out of your screening. So it'll be interesting, you know, to see how that works. And in fact, at some point, maybe not today, but at some point we really should talk about Rotten Tomatoes because I think Rotten Tomatoes has this really interesting role in terms of American culture and evaluating media that's worth thinking about.
1: Well, that's good. Well, for now, let's stay in, in Hollywood and uh, I think as in as a uh, a bookend to today's segment um i w- i want to talk about the New Yorker piece that dropped this week on harvey weinstein um in which it's detailed. Very thoroughly, how harvey uh, harvey weinstein's known for a while that this the, the this story that was eventually broken by the New York Times and The New Yorker was going to drop into these sexual allegations so much so that he had hired. Um, private investigators a company called black cube to basically not only track down some of these women that were uh, making the accusations but also some of the journalists in which either um, she was talking to um, she being Rose McGowan um, or the journalists themselves and it's a really creepy story of um you know they specifically talk about a you know a certain operative who uh, uses false identities on both ends you know and is is trying to say that you know she uh uh, she wants to work with rose McGowan on women's issues to try to get herself in the door with her and then also talking to the journalist about like hey i've got allegations too just trying to suss out what type of uh what type of information they had and um and i mean it's it's insane you know they've got documents that show that um you know, a hundred thousand dollars have been wired to from uh, from Harvey Weinstein's lawyer to Black Cube. You know, is what looks like a you know a down payment on what would be total of $600,000 that he was going to pay to these private investigators. I, I don't know exactly in in, in in hopes of what, but basically they had built into the contract what they were calling success fees, you know, that um, they, they would re- receive an additional $300,000 if they could, quote, provide intelligence, which will directly contribute to the efforts to completely stop the article from being published at all in any shape or form, you know. Um, and it's you know it's interesting to see this this contract refers to Harvey Weinstein as you know Mr X at times and yeah. and the articles like you know capital A article really bizarre story but it, from a from a journalist perspective it's really scary to think about. Um, you know, that, that when you're working on one of these long-term investigative pieces, particularly of people with power, which I think is, you know, kind of what ties together this entire conversation that we're, that we're having, the links in which uh, power can be abused to try to suppress uh, what's going on in journalism itself.
0: Yeah, a lot of what was going on, you know, in Ronan Farrow's life. And uh, there was a, a great interview with him, uh, again, on National Public Radio, not that I listen to National, okay, I do listen to National Public Radio all the time, but, you know, one of the things that the interviewer did was get Ron Farrow to talk about his own family, and that was a connection to it. What was less part of that conversation but is definitely part of this story is how he was also part of this, you know, this this network of, I mean, they're suggesting that their ex-Massad spies basically who are now adopting false identities and things like that and really trying to uh, control to get as much information about what people know and what they're willing to say and then to try to constrain it um, and that these that this kind of thing is out there and possible uh, I think it's really going to serve a good purpose in you know kind of dulling the point of any kind of apology or any kind because this is not you know a framework of forgiveness this is really right. Kind of awful behavior on top of awful behavior, um, all you know, and it's just kind of amazing to think about uh, the layers of deception that were used. Uh, my heart breaks for people like Rose McGowan and what she's gone through and all this. Um, not and it and it just doesn't end. It just doesn't stop. It's like this. So now you know. It's sort of like if you've ever had the experience of being a friend with somebody and then finding out that they've been lying to you systematically for a long period of time, uh, whether because they have issues or because it's their job as it was in this case, uh, to then try to disentangle yourself from all the things that you've come to believe. Um, and again, uh, you know, trust is such an important factor on it and that's what these people are trading and is trying to get the people that they're talking to, to trust them. And then they're selling that information that they get because of that trust.
1: Yeah, I think you know a, a lot of questions have been asked or I I don't want to say a lot I want to say at least you know I've asked myself you know how how can how can something like what this guy has been doing well how 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 could it be suppressed for so long you know we're talking about decades in which he's been able to do this and this story sort of you know spells out exactly why um you know these people of 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 power Um, can, can, can get away with it because they, they, they are able to take their money and put it towards, you know, um, even, even further, um, you know disrupting these the, the, sometimes the the women or the journalists lives you know and i mean there's you know there's quotes in here about how i mean how, how would you not fear for your life after finding out that someone had purposely set up meetings with you under an alias um you know offered you um money and whatever it is to um to to, to not talk itself like how 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 could you not see where the end of something like this comes.
0: Yeah, there was a, there's an there's a moment in the story where uh, they're talking about that somebody who's inner somebody who's talking to you supposedly as a friend wants to move a little closer, and then it's like only later do you go, right. oh. That's because they were recording yeah. what I was <laughs> saying. And it's just like, oh, yeah. You know, like when the when you finally find out what's been going on, you know, how to unpack that relationship and, and see how it works. And this is, yeah, this is what I continue to hope is that. Um, what's been happening as the story has been evolving continues to happen, so that some of these excesses and some of this horrible behavior continues to be exposed because it's deep and broad. It's been going on for a long time in a number of different industries, and industries that haven't even become part of the conversation yet, um, and they're they're going to be eventually as long as this um, this you know keeps up as long as this so that so that people who have never understood how deep this problem runs really understand, you know, not from, uh, the, there's this, this one trope that becomes part of it where people will say, well, I have a daughter or well, you know, I have a sister or something like that. And it's not the people who are related to you. It's like the whole culture and being concerned about how it's affecting the whole culture becomes really important. So, uh, you know, I think anything that can be done to keep the story alive and keep, the idea across that it's important to expose this stuff and then fundamentally change how these industries operate. Um, And of course, you know, putting women in positions of power, letting women have more control over storytelling, those are all very important things. I'd like to add, if I could, on a final note for that, um, that we started watching um, Alias Grace on Netflix. And I'm I'm they're not giving me any money or anything. <laughs> um, but I'm mentioning it because Mary Heron directed it. Oh, Mary they, they could. Yeah, they could. <laughs> right. I, I will not throw the check in the garbage. But uh, Mary Heron directed it. She directed American Psycho, which I'd recommend for people with strong stomachs. But uh, And we've only watched the first couple of episodes of it. But it's a phenomenal piece of work. It's beautifully shot. And it's another. It's based on another Margaret Atwood work. And and uh, I think it's not a surprise the success that they achieved with Handmaid's Tale. Uh, I think the thing, same thing's going to come with this because there are some amazing performances on it. And it's such a... It's such an interesting critique of patriarchal culture. In the fa- in, at the time that all this is going on, which makes it kind of exciting to watch, just to think about what uh, and Sarah Polly, um, the actor who is now an executive producer, great documentary filmmaker too, is an executive producer on this. Um, so there are a significant number of women involved at the very top of this production, and it just looks beautiful, and the acting is beautiful, and it's it's it is painful uh, as often you know ge- ge- uh, gender based critique can be really painful to watch, but um, but. Something I th- I think is a really important. I'm 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 really enjoying and looking forward to watching the rest of it.
1: Well, we can only hope that you know the 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 future of Hollywood is better uh, than than it would have been 30 days ago. Thanks to you know the 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 women that have been brave enough to come out on this story, um, uh, the journalists who uh, continue to uh, to follow up on it, uh, to you know the women that are being put in it, and, and the success we've seen in, in shows like *Handsmaid's Tale* and and um, all the success that that's garnered uh, recently, too. But, but we have reached the time limit in which we set ourselves. We have.
0: So. It is the end of the end of media. <laughs> so, Adam, thank you.
1: Thanks, Ralph.
0: And uh, we'll be back next week.